You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Um, well, let the record show that uh, Brian is obviously the weak link. Um, if you noticed, um, outside it is sunny. Every time I think he's been up here so far, it's been raining. So you're welcome. Um, but it is a privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. Um, the spring of 2007 was a season little did I know at the time that would change my world forever. Um, not only was I about to move to Africa to spend almost three months of my life having my worldview rocked as part of my seminary training, but it was during that time that I met this girl and we started dating quickly after, uh, three weeks to be exact, before I left for Africa. Um, her name is Kelly, and as they say, the, the rest is history. But I want to tell you about a time while we were still dating that I still remember to this day like it was yesterday. It was the day that I was set to leave for Africa. I can remember all throughout that night leading into the morning, dealing with one attack, one lie after another from the enemy. Chip, you're not going to die. Chip, they're not going to understand you, which was true. Um, but Chip, also the big one, um, you're going to be, while you're over there on the other side of the pond, um, Kelly's going to be back over here and she's going to start dating other guys and you can't fix it. And that was huge, like, because, you know, back in that day, you had to make it Facebook official, your relationship, to really seal the deal. And we hadn't done it. So on and on, these lies came until I opened up this letter. Really, though, it was a book filled with one letter after another that Kelly had given me um, the day before I left for Africa. And she gave me specific instructions Um, Chip, do not open it up until tomorrow morning. And of course I obeyed. Um, She titled it, you probably can't see it, but the new and improved little black book. Um, Don't worry, I'm not the black book that we are used to. Rather, this black book is filled with page after page, um, scripture after scripture, letter after letter that she was writing and praying on my behalf while I was in Africa. So you can imagine after facing and hearing one lie after another, as I sat in my car waiting to meet the rest of the guys that would head to Africa, I just sat there and I started to cry as I was reading these letters. This was exactly what I needed to hear. And just like Pastor Brian did with Morgan, as I was reading this letter, what welled up within me was a song. And I I wrote it down and I'm going to sing part of it to you, whether you like it or not. Um, I I don't actually, I know one chord on the guitar, you know, Um, so I'm going to do it a cappella. That's how we kick it. Um, So uh, it went something like this. I'm leaving on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again. So that was actually how it went. You probably have heard it from my good friend, um, John Denver. He made it very famous, but now you know where actually the lyrics came from. He stole them. Um, True story, by the way. Uh, But no, really, this book filled with letter after letter, prayer after prayer, scripture after scripture, it gave me the strength and the encouragement to face Africa head on. And because of that, it is something that I cherish to this day. And I'm sure there are some of you in this room that have a story that is similar to mine of a time that maybe you received a letter that to this day you still cherish. Maybe it was from a parent, a a grandparent, a teacher, a boss, a general, or even the president of the United States. And the reason that you still cherish this letter and it, it, it has impacted your life so much is because of two things, the person who wrote it, but also the contents inside of it. And so this morning, we come to another letter that has been written to the church in Colossae. As you can imagine, when this letter was delivered to them, they could not wait to open it up. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Colossians, Colossians 1, and where we will be spending 
the next two months going through this letter. Before we dive in, though, I ask that you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would bind up the enemy who would so easily love to distract us. God, would you remind him that you are already victorious, that the battle has already won, and that he is simply just weak and puny? And God, we ask that your spirit now would sweep through this place and that you would speak to us, that you would give us ears to receive and a, and a heart to receive your message. God, this morning, would you blow up our view of who you are? Would you challenge us in areas that where we're not looking like you? So God, would your spirit come? And speak to me, speak to us today, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And it's here I want to stop because I think right here in these first two verses, we can really introduce this letter. First of all, we see who the author is. It is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing it to the church in Colossae, to the people of God that have been set apart for him. And just so you know a little bit about the city of Colossae, it it was located in what would be now modern-day Turkey. And at one time, it was a very vibrant and significant city. But by the time Paul is writing this letter, as he sits in a Roman prison cell, the city of Colossae is declining. It is losing its vibrance. But nonetheless, the city of Colossae sat on a major trade route from east to west. And so you have this mixing of culture and this mixing of religions that is going on in the city. And this is the environment that we find this young church in the middle of. But there's a problem that the young church is facing. They are facing false teaching in the form of Gnosticism. Now, Gnostics, they would consider themselves to be the spiritually elite, the know-it-alls spiritually. And so they would look down on what they considered the weaker or lesser Christians, and they would try to teach them how they could go deeper spiritually to know God. So they took a bunch of these different religions that were in the city, and they mixed them together. You know, in our house... At least once a month on a Saturday, we like to make pancakes. And Kelly, every time she swears I make the best pancakes, even though I've tried to tell her, I'm just following the Bisquick box because the ultimate pancake recipe is where it's out. Don't sell yourself short. I know what IHOP is using now, and I'm coming after them. But she's like, you make the best pancakes. And so every once in a while, though, hearing that, I decide, you know what? I'm going to let my inner Martha Stewart go because, guys, we all have an inner Martha, Martha Stewart. You may not like to admit it, but we all do. And so I decide for me, I'm going, you know what? I'm going to mix and put things in the recipe that don't belong there in the first place. Never a good idea. So far, I've tried blending up Oreos and putting it in the batter. You think it sounds good. It's not. And then I've even tried to take Hershey chocolate syrup, go figure this one. And while the pancake is actually cooking on the griddle, go, I'm going to inject this thing with Hershey chocolate syrup and it's going to be gooey and awesome. Uh, I don't even know what I was thinking about that one. It was disgusting. But here's the thing. Every time I've gone away from the tried and true recipe, what I've learned is that when I mix things into it that shouldn't be there, it always ruins. We always end up having to toss it out. It was just simply put a waste of time. And this is what the false teachers were doing. And the stakes were much higher than just ruining some pancakes. You see, these false teachers were intentionally selling a false gospel. They took a little bit of astrology, 
of Oriental mysticism filled with its secret passwords. They took Jewish legalism and some Christianity and they formed their own very high intellectual religion in this city. And what they came up with was that Jesus was just ghost-like. He was a phantom. He was not creator. The incarnation was not real. Jesus was just the beginning step to knowing God. Simply put, what they were saying was Jesus was not enough. As a result, these so-called spiritually elite, they looked down on the believers in Colossae. They made fun of them, and they were trying to pull them astray. And this is the message that Epaphras, the founder of the Colossians church, as we see in verse 7 through 8, brought to Paul. And we must say that the city of Colossae sounds a lot like our day and time. Praise God, we live in a free country, but we have a mixing of cultures that takes place here. We have a buffet of religions and we have a culture that says to us and says especially to this younger generation that Jesus is not the only way, that the God of the Bible and the word that he speaks is just out of date, so spiffy it up and get him up to the times. They will also say, you know what, you can go ahead and pick and choose different parts of each religion that you like. After all, they're all going to get you to heaven, form your own religion, and, and you're good to go. Simply put, what they say is Jesus is not enough. So Paul doesn't just have something to say to the church in Colossae in this letter, but he also is going to say it to us today as well. And what he's going to say all throughout this letter is that Jesus is supreme. He is supreme in power, rank, goodness, knowledge, and glory. He is supreme over all leaders, over all terrorists, over the highest peaks and the religious and all richest treasures. There is no one like Jesus. There is no higher system. Jesus is enough. So that is why we have titled this series, The Supremacy of Christ. Now that we have the backdrop of this letter, let's dive into it a little bit more. And my hope and prayer this morning is that we will see three things from the first 14 verses in regards to our faith. The first is this, faith that is growing and producing fruit will be seen publicly. Let's pick up in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learn it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and is made known to you, uh, made known to us your love in the, in the spirit. So instead of Paul addressing the heresy right away, we see what he does uh, instead is he offers a prayer of thanksgiving and celebration. Notice what he says in verse 3. We always thank God. That's intentional. Paul is not thanking the believers, saying, hey, way to go. You should pat yourself on the back. You had something to do with your faith and this love for the brother and producing this fruit. No, he's saying, listen, we're going to give thanks to God for what he has done in and through you. And so he celebrates their faith. He has heard of their faith, as he says, that their faith has been found in Christ, not in some higher system that, that the false teachers were selling in that day. They had a public faith. They were producing, they were growing and producing fruit in their lives, and it was making ripples in their community, just like the gospel does around the world. And let me just say here, there is no such thing as a quiet faith. 
And what I mean by that is a faith that just stays under the radar where you just stay in your, your kind of holy bubble, so to say, and you go, you know what? This is my faith. I'm just going to keep it to myself. I'm not going to proclaim the hope that I have. I, I just don't want to really bother anybody. It's mine. There's no such thing as this quiet faith. Sadly, though, in our culture and especially in our churches, we have people that profess they love Jesus, but they have a quiet faith. And they'll say, you know what, who am I? I don't really want to offend anybody. I don't want to be labeled and have that hardship placed on me. So I'm just going to stay quiet. And can I ask, how can that be? How, how can we be okay with just saying, you know what, stay a quiet faith. You know, I'll just go to work. I'll, I'll just take care of my house. But man, I'm not going to proclaim the hope that I have. I'm not going to push it on anybody. How can it be? Because you see what we see in scripture is that as we're growing in our knowledge of who God is, and we're becoming more holy like he is, and we're walking in obedience, as a result, your faith will have to be public. After all, Jesus would say, you are called to go and make disciples. That would require your faith to be made known. He would also say, let your light shine before men. And James would say, faith without works is dead. You see, it would require your faith to be public. So there is no such thing, even though we've been led to believe it's okay if I have this quiet faith and I just leave it to me. There is no such thing. Our faith, if we are growing and producing fruit, should be seen publicly. And could it be that the greatest offense that you would ever do towards your neighbor is not tell them of the eternal hope that you have, of the God that has radically saved your life and has redeemed you and give you an an eternal inheritance? I would say that that would absolutely be the greatest offense we could ever have is simply just saying, I'm just going to stay quiet and not tell them the hope that I have. But this wasn't the case for the church in Colossae. Their faith is public and it was being evident and how they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul says, man, let's praise and give thanks to God for what he is doing. Why? Why does he give thanks to God for that? Because there's an inseparable link in scripture between the gospel and loving the family of God. 1 John 2, 9 through 10 says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Now, let's don't just blow by that. Let's sit there for a second. Or let's look at what John's saying. Anyone who claims to say they love Jesus, I follow after Jesus, but says, I don't need the church. Matter of fact, I hate them. I don't care for them. He's going, you're a liar. You, you are walking in darkness. Verse 10, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. stumble. Sadly, though, in our culture, even here in Madison and Huntsville in the Bible Belt we live in, there's a saying that is all too common, and I'm sure you've heard of it before. I, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. I don't love the church because, man, they're always asking me for money. And, man, this is Sunday is, is my day. Or, man, I've been burned by the church. So I'm okay. Me and my family, we're okay to love Jesus, but don't give us the church. And what John says is that's absolutely a lie from the pit of hell you're believing. You, you can't say that. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church because what we see all throughout God's word is we need the church. We're called to walk in community. We're called to walk in community with imperfect, with the imperfect family that has a perfect savior. 
And what happens is as we're striving and pushing one another and we're encouraging one another and we're emptying ourselves and serving one another, the world, our community will see the love that we have for our brothers and sisters. It will send shockwaves through our community. And they'll look at that love and they'll see, I can't have that love. I don't even know that love outside of Christ. And this was what was happening in Colossae. They were bearing fruit and the gospel was impacting their community just like it does throughout the rest of the world and will continue to do until Christ Jesus returns. And this was huge news. Imagine the readers reading this for the first time. I mean, remember what the Gnostics were selling them is that you had to be the spiritually elite to know God. Well, imagine if they had highlighters back in that day when they were reading this passage, they highlighted when Paul was saying, man, the gospel is spreading. Just like it's doing in your life, it's spreading throughout the world because Paul just blows up the Gnostics idea. He's saying that the gospel is for every woman, every, every man, every child, every tribe, tongue, color. The gospel is for all people. So they were highlighting it and they were underlining it. That was worth noting. And all of this though, their faith and love, Paul says is rooted in their hope and the inheritance that they will have in heaven. Once they were people that had no hope, but through Christ, they have hope. And so Paul says, man, let's celebrate. Let's give thanks to God for what he is doing, that God is the active agent in all of this. That they can't have faith without God being the active agent. They can't produce fruit or love their brother without, being, without God being the active agent. So let's praise God for what he is doing in their lives and that their faith is being lived out publicly. It is not a quiet faith. But Paul's prayer, it doesn't stop there though. Rather, he moves from a prayer of thanksgiving to a prayer that he is uh, praying continually over them as a result of their faith growing and producing fruit. Let's pick back up in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul prays for something right here that I imagine really uh, struck the believers in the church as kind of odd or strange, especially with the heresy that they had been facing. Remember, it was one that said, you have to go deeper. You have to have this deeper knowledge to really know God. So what does Paul pray for? That they have knowledge. And this isn't a new idea to Paul. Like if you look through his letters, you see over and over again, he's praying, I'm praying that you grow in the knowledge of God. I'm praying that you would know his will. But this isn't just any ordinary knowledge. It's a knowledge that is full and complete and deep of knowing who Christ is, of knowing his character, of knowing his goodness, of knowing his nature, of knowing his will. And this leads us to the second thing Paul wants to see about our faith. Knowing God and his will are foundational to our faith. I think we would all agree that foundations are critical to building anything I can remember our first house that we bought. Um, going in, we had major foundation problems. And so our contractor said, Chip, why don't you come with me into 
the crawl space. I got something to show you. And can we just all agree? Crawl spaces were created during the fall. All right. Not, uh, you should not go in there. I hate spider webs hitting me. I'm out. I probably would hit the rafters or hit the floor joists, knock myself out. I hate those places. Nonetheless, he somehow got me in there and he says, Chip, man, we got a serious issue. You see this beam that is sitting um, across your whole backside of your house, sitting on the foundation that all the floor joists tie into. It's completely rotten. And so he starts taking his hand and he removes chunk after chunk. And so then he tells us, well, here's the cost. And you know, when we heard that, Kelly and I didn't go, that's good. Thank you for your opinion. But you know what? Our house has gotten us this far. We're just going to continue to sit on this foundation. It's okay. And just ignore what he was advising us to do. No, we knew that while the cost was going to be expensive, there was a greater cost in not fixing it and not dealing with our foundation. As he said, the backside of the house, he was already amazed, hadn't given way. But then even more, the greater cause could be that Kelly and I could be injured or we could lose our lives. So we said, you know what? We've got to fix. We've got to deal with our foundation. It's too important to ignore it. But the problem, and what is so sad, is that there are people that just don't care about knowing God deeper. They don't really care about their spiritual foundation. Matter of fact, they'll neglect it. They'll say, you know what? I've got kids. I'm too busy. Man, I got all these things that I got to do. I got work pressing in on me. So man, don't give me that. You know, I'm good. I get it on Sundays and that's it. So really they're neglecting going deeper with God in their spiritual lives. And maybe they even believe the excuse of, you know what? Don't give me theology and doctrine. That's why you guys go to seminary. Y'all go there to read those books and then give it to us. So don't give me theology and doctrine. And you see, the problem with that is you really all have a theology, whether you like to admit it or not. But really, when you say, don't give me that theology and doctrine, really, you're saying, I have no foundation to stand on based off of my opinions. And so what happens is when the culture changes and shifts like it constantly does, guess what? Your faith constantly shifts and changes and you have no firm foundation to stand on because simply you're still just a babe. And if you would look all throughout scripture, we see that God warns us about staying a babe in our knowledge of who he is. First Corinthians fourteen twenty says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. As a believer, you must care about doctrine. As a believer, you must care about theology. Why? Because what we believe about God will impact every area of our life. How we view God, how we view our relationship with him, how we speak, how we act, even the opinions we formulate will be impacted. So you better believe as a believer, knowing God and his will for our life should take the highest priority. John MacArthur, in his commentary on Colossians, he says this, For the Christian, the authoritative word of God provides absolutes. Those absolutes are the basis upon which all truth about God and all standards of faith and conduct are set. Because knowledge of those absolutes is the basis for correct behavior and ultimate judgment, it is crucial that Christians know God's revealed truth. Ignorance is not bliss, nor can anyone please God on the basis of principles they do not know. May it be that you and I, may it not be that you and I are more satisfied with knowing and having this temporary knowledge 
of our favorite team and the stats and how many championships they won and the stock market and how our retirement account is doing and what's going on in world news. And for teenagers that you care more about the latest trends and the greatest video game than knowing the one true God who has redeemed you and set you apart and called you out and transferred you to the kingdom of darkness that you were destined to and to the kingdom of his son. May we desire that we would dive deep and that we would know God more fully. And so then the question is, well, how do I know God more? What does that look like? Well, first of all, it starts with desire. You actually having a desire to come to the table and say, God, I want to know you more. Would you reveal yourself to me? And with that desire, I want to give you three primary ways that you can know Christ and his will for your life more. The first one is through his word. Pretty simple both the preaching, but also in your quiet time. The amazing truth is there is no secret to knowing God and his will for your life. He has primarily revealed it through his word. His word is a lamp into my feet, a light into my path. And so you and I should, man, eagerly wake up in the morning coming into God's word and say, God, I want your word to speak to me. I want your word to read me. I'm not coming to it to read it and say, man, what can I get out of it for me? And what does it say about me and how good I am and really encourage me? No, God, I want you to read me. I want you to blow my mind up of my knowledge of who you are. Man, I, God, I want your commands to show me and your word to show me if there are things that I'm not following and that you would bring me to a place of repentance. God, I want your word to read me. So as believers, we should be diving into God's word because that's the primary way we're gonna know God and his will. The second way is to walk in community with other believers. And I'm not saying on just Sunday morning, because I think it's very easy for us to go, let's check off the box Sunday morning. All right, I go about my day. I do about my, uh, or go about work. And then I do my hobbies on Saturday, come back on Sunday, check off my box. No, we need community with one another. And here at the Brook, we have missional communities. And as a member, I would encourage you, you need community. Because you see, what happens in that community is that you dive into God's word together. You pray with one another. You fight for one another. You hold each other accountable. Maybe you come to them and say, hey man, in my daily readings, this is what I'm reading. And I want to just bounce something off of you. You absolutely need community. There is no such thing as, you know what, I'm good over here with my family. And we get Sunday morning, but we don't really have to walk in community with other believers. Remember? Remember the lie that, that our culture says? I, I can love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Don't fall into that category. Walk in community. Get into a missional community if you're choosing the brook as the church home, as your church home. And then number three, read, read, read. Dive into some weighty books. Challenge yourself. Stretch your mind. Read authors and theologians that normally you wouldn't pick up. Read books that maybe you have to stop after a chapter or for me, after the first page. So you can just think about it and go, man, that was weighty. Read things that would expand your view on who God is and his attributes and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Read authors like Jerry Bridges or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or John Piper or A.W. Tozer. Read people that will stretch you. What you don't need to be reading is how to have your best life now and how to put these three things in your life and then you're gonna be a better Christian. You don't need that at all. You need to challenge yourself to grow spiritually and to know God more. So dive into some weighty books. Let's get back to Paul's letter. 
Because Paul tells us the reason why he is praying that they be filled with knowledge. Verse 10 of Colossians 1. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What we see in this passage is that faith driven by our knowledge of God, it leads to a worthy walk. This knowledge impacts our walk in four ways, Paul says in verses 10 through 14. And for the sake of time, we're not going to dive into depth into any of these. But I want to make sure you see what Paul is getting at and why he's praying for knowledge because of the results, because of how it impacts our, our, our walk. The first way is that we would bear fruit. Faith must be put into action. There is no such thing as we've already talked about. This silent, this quiet, this idle faith. And what happens is the more I know about God and who he is and his will for my life, and I walk in obedience to his commands, the more I grow and the more I look like him. And as a result, Paul says, I produce fruit. And I don't just occasionally produce fruit. I continually produce fruit. And this fruit produced in every good work will be something that brings glory to God, but that God is using to draw people to him, just like he is doing in the church of Colossae. They are living their faith out publicly and it's drawing people. People are taking notice of their love. The second thing, we grow in knowledge. Now, this may seem a little bit weird because Paul had just prayed about this, but what Paul is getting at is the more we produce fruit, they're all connected. The more that we produce fruit, the more we will grow in our knowledge of who he is. And here's the pretty cool thing is that's not just something linear, but it's circular because not only is it the more that we produce fruit and that we walk in in a manner worthy of him and we serve him, will we know him more? But the other is true. The more that we know God and we seek to look more like him, the more fruit we will produce and we will have this desire to serve him and make much of him. Third way is that we are strengthened, not with any strength, not with a strength that you can get at Planet Fitness, that won't do you any good, but with a spiritual strength, a strength that only God will provide. It's a continual strength. It's a colossal strength. He will give you the strength to run the race called life with endurance and patience. Endurance to face the trials and the hardships, the joys of life, the sicknesses that will, that will come your way, the persecution. You'll be able to face it with endurance knowing, man, I don't like it. It kind of stinks, but I know God's got a plan in all of this. And you'll be able to run the race called life with patience. The type of patience Paul is talking about here is a patience to deal with people. I'm sure you've had people that bend you the wrong way, that kind of just get under your skin. Well, Paul is saying God is going to give you the strength to walk with them in great patience, that you will show them grace over and over again, just like Christ has done in your life. And because it's God's strength in us that he gives us this endurance and this patience that we can have great joy in all of it. We can have great joy knowing in that sickness, it didn't catch God off guard. He's working his plan. 
And the, persecu- and the persecution that comes, it wasn't like it was off of God's radar and he had no idea, but no, we can go. No, in all of these things, God is working it for my good and for his glory to make me look more like him. The fourth way is that it brings us to a place of worship. You see, the more and more I dive into God's word, I realize that no matter how many times I sit through sermons or how many stories I know or how much I give or how many mission trips or camps we go to, that I can't save myself, that my debt was too great. And then it just draws me back to God, that God is the one that has redeemed me and he's called me out, that he was the active agent in all. I couldn't do it on my own. He has qualified me. He has given me an eternal inheritance. He has transferred me from the kingdom of darkness, as Paul says, into the kingdom of light. And here's what should happen. If we know those things, if we continually preach the gospel to ourselves, if we are producing fruit and our knowledge of who God is is growing, should it not be that it wells up within our heart, this heart of worship and this heart of thanksgiving for what God is doing? He's the active agent. You couldn't produce fruit. I couldn't produce fruit on my own. I couldn't know God any greater without God being the active agent. It's not my doing. It is his. And so it should well up within you and I, man, this heart of saying, praise be to God and thank God that he would send his one and only son. It's such a great high price so that I could be redeemed so that I could be set free and no longer a slave, but be a child of God. And so closing, I want to ask you this. If someone were to pin a letter to you about your faith, how would they start off the letter? Would it be one of celebration and giving thanks for what God is doing or would it kind of be one of just a scalding of how you're actually not living for Jesus and not living your faith out publicly? I pray it would read like this. We always give thanks to God the Father because we have heard of your faith. It is evident because it is producing fruit. It is evident in the way you love the bride of Christ. And it is evident in that you desire to be more and more like Christ, to be holy like he is. And it is evident because your city and the areas of the world that you touch are being impacted with the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus saves, that Jesus is enough. So continue to press on and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. May this be true of your life, but may this also be true of the brook. And may it be that as we leave, that we would take the attitude of Paul that we see in in these first 14 verses. That we would pray not just for the needs of a believer, but we would pray and give thanks and celebrate what God is doing in the lives of each other. But on top of that, we'd be praying for one another throughout this room by name saying, God, would you let them grow deeper in their knowledge of who you are? May that be our heart. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, this morning, God, we just come and we ask that your spirit would search our hearts, our minds. And God, we are thankful that your spirit is living and active. Your word is living and active, that your word does not return void. And so God, I, I pray that you would forgive us, 
Lord, if there are some in this room that just believe, you know, it's okay if I actually do stay a babe. Don't give me the doctrine. Don't give me the theology. I don't really want to grow my faith on, the, on my own. God, would you forgive them? God, would we see that we are called to have a growing and a deeper knowledge of who you are because it impacts every area of our lives. God, maybe there's some in this room that are going, you know what? I, I just haven't actually lived out my faith and lived out this inward change. God, I pray that you would give them the boldness to start, to start sharing their faith, to start declaring the hope, the eternal hope that never changes, that is for sure, that will guaranteed happen. That they will proclaim that hope that can only be found in you, Jesus. God, I pray that as we grow in you, that you would just well up in this desire to know you more and more, to yearn after you. To know the God that would save a sinner, a wretch like me. To know a God that would call me, instead of a slave, he would call me a child. A child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, I'm praying that as we leave here, that we would walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, where we are being strengthened through you, where we are growing in our knowledge of who you are, where we are worshiping you with our hearts, with our minds, with our lips. God, and that we are producing fruit. So God, as we leave, let us be a body that truly proclaims that our hope is in you, Jesus that truly professes that you, Jesus, are enough. So God, in these next few minutes, Lord, would you search us? Would you do your work? Lord, and if there's areas that aren't adding up, God, would we just, maybe if we got to come to the altar, we just got to sit in our seat. God, would we just do business with you? God, I'm praying that maybe if there's someone in here that doesn't know you, maybe they are just stuck on a head knowledge that, Lord, today would be the day of their salvation. Today would be the day that they would be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your son. And if that is you, we'll have pastors, we have elders in the back that would love to speak to you. So, God, we just ask that you would come. We ask that you would have your way. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.